We've been in this teaching series six or seven weeks looking at the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, most self-referenced verse in the Bible in Exodus 34. Just to say, if you've missed a week out of those seven weeks or so, um, do go back and catch up on the podcast. You can find them on the website, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, we've really intentionally taken the time to drill down into this one verse, one word at a time almost. And the series kind of flows together like that. So if you've, if you've missed a week, do go back and catch up. I think it'll change your life. Um, and so we're coming towards the end of the series uh, today uh, with the final description of God's character in that verse. Faithfulness. Faithful. Um, faithful, that is a word that we know and love, especially in church. We use it a lot. Um, we've even been singing about it today. Um, and it's a word that has gained a lot more traction in our popular culture recently, thanks to the smash hit TV sensation, The Traitors. Any Traitors fans in the room? Just from that little, yeah, great. Um, I've never watched The Traitors. Yeah, some booze. John booed me this morning. My own vicar booed me uh, for not having watched The Traitors. Um, I don't know if I'm qualified to even do this talk on faithfulness if I haven't watched The Traitors. Um, But, uh, you know, like I said, it's this word, faithful. We know it, we love it. um, And much like love from last week, it's sort of like Christianity 101, right? God is faithful. Sure, we all know that. Some of us have known it for years. Um, But what does it actually mean? Well, Um, In our verse, the Hebrew word is this, emet, emet. Uh, It's often translated as true um, or firm or consistent or unchanging. Um, But you know, I've really wrestled with this this week as I've been trying to write this talk because um, uh, we can kind of, I think we can mean all kinds of things when we say faithful. Maybe we know that ultimately it means this, but... um, when we think about God's faithfulness, um, maybe even when we sing about it, I think we're very quick to call to mind all the ways that God is faithful to us, right? It very quickly becomes, God, you've been faithful in this way to me. You've provided in this way to me. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, in fact. I'd encourage you to think on those things. But the point is, we're very quick to think of his faithfulness to us. And my conundrum really this week as I've been wrestling with it is, Is that what's going on in Exodus 34, 6 and 7? Is Yahweh saying to Moses, I will be faithful to you specifically, Moses, you. To your specific set of circumstances, I will be Yahweh, Yahweh, faithful. Is it about Moses individually? No, that's not what's going on. Primarily, Exodus is not a Exodus thirty-four is not a one-off statement about God's feelings towards any particular individual. It's not a list of his subjective feelings. It's a description of who he is at his core, regardless of anybody. Compassionate, always loving, always he is who he is, regardless. Right? And you could say God doesn't need anyone for him to be any of these things. If humanity never existed, he would still be loving, compassionate, gracious, because it is who he is. And so it's the same with his faithfulness. See, God's faithfulness is not primarily about us or our circumstances. It's about him. He is faithful by nature, faithful in and of himself. Does that make sense? 
And there's really the first thing that I want to say, faithful in and of himself and also faithful to himself. God is primarily faithful to himself. What does that mean? Well, stay with me with it, because um, I I basically think another way that you could say that is uh, that God is completely consistent to his nature. Consistent to his nature. So all the things that we've looked at over the past six weeks, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, loving, he will always be those things because he is faithful to himself, right? Faithful to his nature, unchanging, consistent. And we'll get to why that matters in a little bit, but just to unpack it a bit further, it might be helpful to think of what the opposite of that might be. Um, And it's us. Uh, We are inconsistent, unfaithful to ourselves, right? You're welcome for that news today. You are unfaithful to yourself. Um, What I mean is that we, we all have these aims and aspirations and qualities of character that we want to go after, right? We want to be loving. We want to be kind. We want to be compassionate. We hold them as valuable character traits to go after. We believe that they're good and worth pursuing and being. And yet, are we always those things? No, we're not. I'm constantly angry and impatient and selfish and unkind and lacking compassion. There is an inconsistency in us, right, between what we know to be good and true and worthy of pursuing and then how we actually live. We're inconsistent, unfaithful to ourselves. Do you see what I mean? Whereas God, when he sets out to love someone, he does. When he sets out to show compassion, he does because he is faithful to himself, to who he says he is, his love, his grace, compassion. Will he ever fail to be those things? Will he change and suddenly become someone who is quick to anger? No. He will never change because he is emet, faithful. And so just try and get yourself, if you can, inside the mind of Moses. To go back to where we started six weeks ago with this journey up the mountain to meet God in the cloud that he's on. Try and get yourself in his mind. And remember that Moses grew up in Egypt um, uh, as part of the Egyptian royal family with Egyptian customs and culture and religion. And um, please, any ancient Egyptian scholars in the room, do come up to me afterwards and fill in the gaps on this, but from my brief understanding, um, the Egyptian gods sound nothing like Yahweh. For one thing, there is thousands of them, uh, and they all have these different characteristics and ways of interacting with humanity. And basically, the way that an Egyptian would interact with these gods would be to do a whole load of weird things to try and gain their blessing. So like kind of act this way, please me with this sacrifice and you'll have a good harvest this year, that kind of thing, right? But the thing is, even then, some of these gods would just decide not to bless them. Uh, They're the gods, they can do what they want. Uh, And in fact, lots of them took great joy in using humanity as like their plaything, as a source of entertainment to play tricks on and manipulate. Uh, Take the Egyptian god Seth, for example. Apologies to any Seths in the room. Um, 
found this quote about Seth from a historian. Seth occupied an important spot in Egyptian mythology and worship. Seth was described as a trickster god, one who deceives people for the pleasure of doing so. Thousands of statues depicting Seth were made in the hopes that God, that the God would grant the devotees their wishes. He sounds like a hoot. But here's the point. You never know what these gods are going to do. You can't pin them down. They're manipulative tricksters using power for their own gain who need to be convinced into blessing you. And even then, they could always change their minds later simply because they want to. And so this is the spiritual landscape that Moses grew up in. He would have been aware of it walking up the mountain, this idea of what the gods are like. And let's face it, the Israelites would have been around this stuff as well, familiar with this. And, you know, just out of curiosity, I I just sort of kept going throughout history looking at some other famous gods. Um, And you see the same pattern. Um, Zeus, we probably all know Zeus. Um, Same thing, Greek king of the gods, all powerful um, and yet infamous for promiscuity and how quickly he would be swayed to do all manner of violent and immoral things that no king or anyone else should ever be doing. Seen as a righteous ruler and yet quick to act nothing like one. Or Thor, a Viking god, same thing, angry, vengeful, easily antagonised. One moment he's calm and kingly, and the next he's dishing out violence, literally as quick as lightning. And so the list goes on through all of the gods. This is the world of the gods, lowercase g. You never know which version of them you're going to get. Approaching them and engaging with them was basically a theological roll of the dice. And so Moses is stepping up the mountain to approach his deity, his God. He must have been trembling. And what does he hear? Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. Faithfulness. Unchanging. I am who I am. Who I say I'm going to be, I will be. Gracious always. Compassionate always. Slow to anger always. Faithful to who he is. And I imagine Moses exhales. This God Yahweh is radically different. He stands alone among the gods, incomparable, truly worthy of worship, devotion of your very life. And you can trust him with it because he's faithful. So to come to the question that I sort of teased earlier, why does it matter? Why does any of this matter that Yahweh is faithful in this way? Or is it just some kind of theological exercise for the Bible nerds out there? Shout out to you guys. It really matters because we so need this kind of God. We so need him. You know, I think we all crave this kind of faithfulness. In our culture, we we crave it. People are searching for faithfulness, something or someone to, someone consistent to anchor their lives into. Uh, Me and my wife Meg have just started watching season three of Sunderland Till I Die on Netflix. Um, It's not exactly The Traitors, I'll be honest. But um, uh, if you like a sports documentary, 
great. Um, basically, it tracks the last few seasons of Sunderland Football Club um, through back-to-back relegation, ownership changes, failed promotion attempts. It's pretty bleak if you're a Sunderland fan. Um, but you see, in that show, they follow along with uh, four or five different season ticket holders through these different seasons, right? Amazing people with such dedication to their club, even through all of the rubbish. Um, and in the episode we watched the other day, it really struck me what one of them said. They said this, Other than my family and my friends, Sunderland is the only other constant in my life. It's been there since the second I can remember, and it'll be there till the day I die. No matter what happens, you can't say anything else except Sunderland is everything. Sunderland is everything. Whoa, that's bleak. But you know, he wasn't joking. He wasn't, he really meant that. It really struck me. And um, there will be people in our city and maybe even in this room today for whom that is their reality. You've been following saints for all of your life and that weekly ritual of going to the stadium with your family or the people you care about is the constant in your life. It may be for you that sounds absolutely ridiculous. You're not a football fan and so you just don't get it. But I want to suggest that there will be an equivalent for you in your life. Your version of that. Maybe... Maybe you wouldn't say it's everything to you, but we are all grasping for consistency, solidity, faithfulness, something to hold on to through the rituals and rhythms that we build into our lives, family, friends, jobs, holidays, Christmas. It's why we all felt it so much when the pandemic hit, right? I did, when I couldn't have the Christmas that I've always known year after year for 30 years. When my wedding was limited to only six people. When life as we knew it, with all its consistency and rhythm, was interrupted and torn to pieces. We all felt it. Because we're all wired for this kind of trustworthy, regular, unchanging, consistent life. It's what we're drawn to and it's what we crave if we don't have it. And we feel it painfully if it's taken away. And so hear me, it's, it's not a bad thing to love your football club or have that weekly coffee with a friend that you really rely on or, or really enjoy Christmas when it comes around each year. But if those things are everything to you, then something's gone wrong. That same Sunderland fan continued, we're in a one-club town and the team is the town. It's everything. If Sunderland are doing well, then the town is doing well. People are happy, the place feels alive. But if the club is doing badly, then the town is doing badly and people's mental health gets affected. People are depressed. And see, this is the fickle reality of placing your faith in something that ultimately can't repay the favour. Putting everything into something that was never meant to be everything to you. You know, family is one of life's great blessings. Friendship, too. Meg is sensationally faithful to me in our marriage, despite my many failings. These things are good. They carry an echo of the faithfulness that we crave. But they cannot be everything to us. Because if they are, then we're just rolling the dice all over again. The episode that I quoted from is literally called Something to Throw Your Hope Into. That's exactly what we're talking about, throwing your hope at an echo and hoping that it holds. 
and it inevitably won't. Because nothing is as faithful as you need it to be. Happy Sunday, everyone. Nothing is as faithful as you need it to be, except Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, abounding in faithfulness. He will never let you down. He'll never leave you. He will never change. He'll never say that he's one thing and then prove to be another. He is the faithfulness that you crave, that you need, that you were made to know and rely on. And there is no promise that he will not keep. This is good news today. And so before we move on, do you know him? Is he everything to you? Or are you relying on other things to fill that void? They may not be bad things, or maybe they are. Hear the invitation of God today. Come, follow me, know me. Throw yourself, your hopes, your dreams, your life into my hands. I am more than faithful enough to catch you. That is his promise to you. Not to the person sat next to you, although it is as well. To you. He's faithful. And actually, I think that is his primary promise. Just with the time that we have left, if we want to just shift gears slightly, leading out of his faithfulness. Um, Because it's another buzzword, right, this, the idea of the promises of God. The promises of God, we all trust in the promises of God. We sing about it, like I said at the start. Um, And again, subconsciously, I think we hear that and we think, yep, I trust in your promises. I know you're faithful. I believe it. I've got faith for how you're going to provide, Lord. That trip to the Maldives, it's in your hands and I trust you for it, Lord, Jehovah, Jehovah, provider, amen. You know, if we're not careful, that's accidentally what happens. We immediately go to the stuff that we want. Very quick to jump from the faithfulness of God to the things that we want in life. And that's what we end up praying for, right? Trusting God for. And hear me again, you can ask God for those things, for the things that you want in life. He wants to hear it. It's part of the mystery of prayer that God wants to hear our requests. Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, right? He wants to hear it. Don't stop asking for those things. And I know for some people in the room, you have been asking for something deeply meaningful for years and you haven't had the breakthrough that feeling of unanswered prayer, what feels like waiting for a lifetime for that yes. And I see you and I hear you and I want to acknowledge that. Keep the faith. He is with you in the pain. And we don't have time to unpack the mystery of all of that. Um, Just if you do want some more stuff on that, about a year and a half ago, Abiel, who shared about youth, did an amazing talk on prayer really um, specifically on unanswered prayer. So go check that out if you want more. But tonight, I don't want to pretend that I have the answers for that. Some things we can know and others we can't. But what I do know is that our faithful God has made promises and his promises are true. When he makes a promise, the answer is always yes. It's always yes. How about this for one? Isaiah 43, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. It's a promise. Romans 8, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? Now we're talking. Revelation 21, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. What about that for a promise? I'm making everything new. You know, some of us need to be reminded of the promises of God today. Some of us because of the pain and the waiting. But for others of us, to be honest, if we're honest, and I'm preaching to myself here, our prayer lives need a massive shot in the arm. The classic description of a rusty prayer life, right, is that it's just become a shopping list. We just come to God and you list off all the things that you want. A daily, or let's be real, often way less frequent than that, listing off of the things that we want to see happen, the situations we need resolved or whatever. And again, he wants to hear it, but if that's all we're doing, the promises of God are so much ludicrously bigger than the stuff that we ask for. They're so much bigger than we often dare ask for. I'm making all things new. How often do you pray for that? Lord, renew your world. You've said that you're going to. Lord, do it in our time. All things, the breaking in of the kingdom of God, the literal overlapping of heaven and earth, where there's an end to suffering and pain, where healing is a reality and the supernatural is the norm rather than the exception, where sickness is no more, where there's no more crying or war or relationship breakdown or even death. No more death. It's a promise of God. How often do we pray that way? This is what it looks like to live a life of prayer rooted in the promises of God motivated by a deep trust and faith in both who he said he is and what he said he's going to do. I tried to find a quote to um, back up my point on this next bit, but I couldn't really find anybody else saying it, so this is just me saying it. Um, uh, here's my little, my little nugget for you all. Um, I think that much of prayer is learning to be with God for long enough that you want the same things he wants. I say again, much of prayer is learning to be with God for long enough that you want the same things he wants. It's this idea of not coming to God with a list of requests first and foremost, but just coming to God to be with him and letting him love you and loving him back, often without using words, until you're so united that you care about the same things that he cares about, that you want the same things that he wants. The things that he's promised, the things that he's going after, the restoration of the world, an end to suffering and pain, justice in all its forms, the kingdom established, hope restored, the poor cared for, the sick healed, his glory and fame made known, and your transformation into the image of Jesus. I heard that line the other week. He is far more committed to your transformation into Christ-likeness than you are. 
It's what he wants. It's what he's promised to do, to make you like Jesus. These are the things God wants, his promises. And when he promises something, it will happen because he's faithful. So are you praying that way? Am I praying that way? Knowing who God is, unchanging, true, faithful, and knowing what he's promised, what he's most committed to doing, that can change everything. And it can certainly change the way we pray. So just think, what would happen? Emily spoke about Lent over the next 40 days if the few hundred people who call St. Mary's home if we committed through Lent and beyond, if we all just started crying out to God to do the things that he's promised to do, where might we be in 40 days? What might we see happen in our city or in our church? If we cry out to him for the things that we know he wants to happen and he's promised, where would we be if our desires aligned with his? And every day we call upon him to come good on the promises he's made for his world and his people. Can you imagine what might happen? So God is faithful. He'll never change or be anyone else. And he's made promises that he'll keep. So let's go after them with him. So as we finish, six or seven weeks ago, I sat here as we kicked off this teaching series and I said that this verse in Exodus could change your life. That these six or seven weeks could be the most significant six or seven weeks in your life. And I stand by that. I don't know how you found it, but I stand by that. Not because of our ability to teach it really well, but because the God who spoke it 3,000 years ago is faithful He is still Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving rebellion, wickedness and sin. He is still inviting people to know him, still revealing his nature to people who desperately need him, who were made to know him. And so as this series comes into land, I want to ask you again, will you go after him? not just for six or seven weeks at the beginning of January and February, but over a lifetime, will you go after him? This kind, compassionate, faithful God, will you throw your hope and your very life into him, into his unchanging nature? Will you learn to love what he loves and to go after what he's going after? Because this is life, true life, with God, with Yahweh, the God of the ages, faithful now and forever. Amen. Would you stand with me if you're able?